Well, this morning in Ephesians chapter 5 and verses 22 to 33. Our subject this morning, Christian marriage. Just two things to say as you turn that up. Number one, the second half of Ephesians, Paul's concern is how we live as Christians, Christian conduct. But let's not lose sight of the first half of Ephesians, which explains who we are in Christ. And the application, therefore, of the second half is be who you have become. So we will never attain to what God's Word asks of us were it not for the Holy Spirit within us. So be who you have become. The second point before we read it is that this passage about Christian marriage, what I want to encourage you to do is not to default to apply this too quickly to yourselves or to people you know in this situation or what you would look for or long for in life, but it's Paul is writing corporately to a church. So this letter is being read out to the church community at Ephesus. All the services gathered together. This is what I want you to think about as a church community about marriage and the marriages within the church community. Okay? Let's read Ephesians five twenty-two to 33. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is itself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, And let the wife see that she respects her husband. Well, shall we pray? Our Father, your word here is practical, profound, and good. Help us to understand it, that we might live according to it, for Christ's sake. Amen. Now, you'll see inside the service sheet, uh, do open that up two uh, main headings. In Christian marriage, a wife submits to her husband, who is her head, as she does to the Lord. And then secondly, in Christian marriage, a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church. 
Now, one or two things to say as we kind of waggle on the tee. I've used the term Christian marriage because Paul's concern here is not what the church says to the culture about how the culture should live. Paul's concern here is how the church should live vis-a-vis the subject of marriage. The church's job is not to preach to the culture as much as it is in terms of Christian conduct to shine like a light into the culture showing a different humanity. That's the point. Now, without breaching any confidences, how might you be hearing this? There are people here and in the other services and uh, online, people who are single and who would long to be married, people who are single and have come to accept the fact that it is very unlikely that they are going to be married for a range of reasons. There are people who have experienced the breakup in their marriage or their parents' marriage. There are people who are deeply unhappy in their marriages. And there are people who are Christians, but married to people who are not yet Christians. And I guess there are people who are married, and what the world sees their marriage is like is not what their marriage is like. There are married couples who have come to church this morning having had a big row with each other on the way. I said that in the first service and everybody looked at me and conveyed very powerfully to me, that never happens in our house. And I thought it happens about three times out of five in ours because we're stressed on Sundays. You know, it's true though, isn't it, that if you take a lid off or the roof off a house and see into that house and marriages. It's just not like what people think it's like. Now, I say all of that because as a church family, we love and care for each other, conscious of and sensitive to the circumstances in people's lives. None of us are sorted people. I know that. You know that. I've been trying to convince you that I am not a sorted person for nine and a half years. And yet, whatever our personal circumstances, whether we are married or not, whatever our personal circumstances, God's Word here encourages us to think about the marriages in this church and in the wider church to pray for them and to try to encourage men in the church, whether you are married or not, to encourage the men in the church to live in accordance with how the Bible says men and husbands should live. And to try and encourage the women in the church to live in accordance with how the Bible says women and wives are to live. Now, our commitment to marriage as Christians, as a church, is important. Why? Because of how important marriage is to God. How important is marriage to God? Marriage begins and ends the Bible. Genesis, the end of Revelation. Marriage is a line that runs from Genesis through Revelation. It is an unbroken line. It is a strong line. And that line is affirmed consistently. Marriage is held up and esteemed right through the Bible. 
and it is protected or guarded from anything that threatens to undermine it. As Christians, we need to be committed to God's pattern for marriage. Why? Because all around the culture seeks to undermine it. We all know that. There's nothing new under the sun. That's why Paul wrote this letter to the Ephesians then. In Ephesus, the culture sought to undermine marriage. And Paul said, look, this is a key area because marriage is so important to God whereby the church will be distinctive and shine in the culture so that we need to be committed to marriage. But there are certain times in the history of the church, particularly when the culture is very secular, that we need to be committed to marriage within a church because the church has lost its commitment to marriage. And that's a grievous and a fundamental thing, as we'll see. And I said that we're not kind of pronouncing to society yet, nor are we pronouncing today to other churches or denominations about stuff like this. Let's just be concerned about ourselves. There's a time and a place for that, but what about the marriages within our church? We're very it's a great joy that we can celebrate marriages very, very often in the church. And I want to say that as well as acknowledging the the pain and the pastoral stuff that many of you uh, bear. Next Saturday, we will celebrate um, a marriage again in the church. So, for these reasons, we need to be committed to marriage. If we're not committed to marriage as God describes it, then we begin to dismantle the framework that is the church because marriage, husband-wife, is mirrored by church, Christ, his bride, the church, in terms of the relationships. So as we dismantle marriage, we dismantle that framework as well. And if we dismantle marriage, man-woman as God intended, we dismantle God's purposes in creation and purposes in redemption and purposes in eternity. We just take it all down and take all the scaffolding apart. And if you do that, effectively what you end up doing is saying, back in Genesis 2, when God says at the very end of his description of creation, marriage is the way supremely that humanity will be seen in a complementary, equal relationship with each other. We're saying to God, when you said... A man shall leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. God, you were wrong. That's what we're seeing. So the stakes are really high. Now, what is it that we are to be committed to when we say we are to be committed to marriage in a church like this? Firstly, that marriage is an exclusive covenant commitment between one man and one woman for life. I think we would be committed to that. But secondly, and just as importantly, a marriage is where a wife submits to her husband who is her head as to the Lord, and a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Now, these two stand in Scripture side by side, and I suspect that we're more naturally or easily committed to the first, that marriage is a lifelong covenant, exclusive commitment between a man and a woman than we are to the second bit, which is a pattern whereby a wife submits to her husband and the husband is the head of the wife as Christ loves the church. That second bit within sort of the church 
or evangelical churches or churches like ours, I suspect is really taught on. It can't be because a number of you asked me this week, what is my view on headship in marriage, which means I haven't taught you And what my view is equally is irrelevant. Do not ever listen to what I say and believe any of it. Our view is shaped by this word, God's word. So here we go on this subject. Point number one in the detail of the text. In Christian marriage, a wife submits to her husband who is her head as to the Lord. Let's read verse 27, uh, sorry, 22. 23 and 24 again. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Words like submit, obey, and head are about as pejorative or toxic in our culture as you could possibly get. And uh, I would often in a wedding service say I'm comfortable with grooms and bridegrooms not using the word submit in vows in a service because it's just very difficult in a marriage service to then have the 20 minutes or 30 minutes to explain what I'm going to explain now. What I am concerned about always, though, is that these principles are reflected in their marriages. Otherwise, they're not strong or happy or steady or joyful. And you might be there thinking, oh, he's a bloke. Say, don't fall into the trap of listening to my opinion on this. It's God's word, God that we're listening to. Now, what does the Bible say these words, submit and head, uh, mean? That's what's important to us. Now, the word submit means to acknowledge the authority or leadership of another. How do we know that's what submit means? Because of the explanation given as to why wives are to submit to their husbands. The explanation is verse 23. Because, so wives submit to your husbands because the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church's body and is himself its Savior. So, you submit to your husband because, uh, uh, as your head because Christ is the head of the church, and we submit to Christ. Now, some argue that the word head in verse 23 means source or origin, in the sense that the husband or man was created before his wife, woman, in the same way that Christ precedes the church, that Christ came before the church it was. I think it, we would probably all intuitively agree that that isn't, isn't anywhere near the plain reading of this and tries to find a way to get an understanding in that's just not there. Let me show you, though, from the rest of Ephesians why headship means authority or leadership. Just look back to chapter 1 and verse 22. Chapter 1, verse 22, he, God, put all things under his Christ's feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who falls all in all. And it's very clear from that that it's an authority that Christ has 
over the church. Christ is the leader of the church. Other references in Ephesians 4.15, other references in the New Testament. For example, Colossians 1.18, Jesus is the head of the body that is the church. Now, clearly, the way to explain or justify what God's Word says about the husband being the head of the wife and the wife submitting to the husband, the parallel is Christ and the church. Clearly, Christ is the king and head of the church. And that has never been disputed in Christian tradition or in any of the creeds. And the point is, it is that undisputed fact, the authority of Christ over his church, that is the way Paul explains the authority or headship of a husband over his wife in a marriage. Now, just before we think about what this looks like in practice, let me say one more thing. Headship does not in any way mean inequality between a man and a woman, a husband and a wife. Somebody asked me after the first service if I could explain that bit more clearly in the second service. So here we go. Let me try. I can't, in a sense, tie these two precisely in your mind together so that you can understand it. That headship or leadership in a marriage needs to stand alongside a fundamental equality with who we are in Christ. Both are true. How do you know that headship here in Ephesians, leadership in a marriage, does not mean to say that the husband and wife are unequal? How do you know? Because all that Paul has said to this point in Ephesians about the church is that it's a fundamental, equal relationship between God's new humanity. That's why he uses the phrase one new man or one new person. Total unity in this room before the eyes of God. So there are married couples in this room. They sit next to each other as husband and wife. They are fundamentally equal in the eyes of God as his children, and yet the husband is the head of the wife, and the wife submits to the husband. It's equality alongside complementarity. And complementarity means difference. Men and women are different physically, Men and women have different roles within a marriage. Equality, complementarity. And if any of you ask me after this service to explain it again more clearly, I have no more services to go. Now, how do you, what's the, the most powerful thing I can say to you to get you to hold equality and complementarity roles together? Uh, let me ask you this question. Is God the Son equal in divinity to God the Father and God the Holy Spirit? If God the Son is not fully God, then his atonement, his dying to save us, could not have worked because he needed to be fully God. Jesus said, I and the Father am one. Again and again, Jesus was asked, are you God? He said, I am God. But is Jesus, in 
a relationship with a father that in any way helps us to understand complementarity or different roles. He is fully equal. Well, he is. So what did Jesus say in the Garden of Gethsemane? Yet not my will be done, but your will be done. Jesus submits to the authority and leadership of God the Father, God the Son to God the Father. Fully God, fully God, and yet God the Son submits to God the Father. Or in 1 Corinthians eleven thirteen, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. And the head of Christ is God the Father. So when we rebel as Christian women against submitting to our husbands, when we abdicate our responsibilities as Christian husbands from loving our wives in such a way that merits that submission, we are, in a sense, saying, Jesus, we will do things differently from you in relation to your relationship to God the Father. And it's why Paul always, when he's speaking about marriage roles and roles within the church, either goes to creation or the new creation or Jesus. Very powerful arguments. Now, practically, what does this look like for a wife to submit to her husband in a Christian marriage? Well, as we'll see in a moment, what she is being asked to submit to is not autocratic or authoritarian rule. She has been asked to submit to a husband who loves her like Christ loves the church. Now, practically, in a marriage, there are big decisions to make in life. All sorts of things. They need to be talked about and prayed through as a couple, of course. And the husband needs to put the interests of his wife first in making that decision. He must be selfless in his decisions. But in the end, it is his responsibility to take the lead and make the decision. And a wife is asked to submit to that decision. Now, personal illustrations today, um, well, yesterday they were banned. This morning, that ban has been lifted on me slightly. Um, I'm allowed one personal illustration or I was in the first service, but Sally has now gone. <laughs> and I, I don't want to give too many of these because you might think that I'm something that I'm not, and I'm not. I am a, as flawed as they get. But it's what I know in a real way, in a real life. When Sally and I met on our first date, which was the date I asked her to marry me, which is not good advice. I wouldn't want to give you that. Uh, she, she said to me it was a little forward at the time. <laughs> I explained to her on our first date a very strong sense that I had of a call to ministry. And if we were to be married, that was the likely future. Right up front. Now, it wasn't until two years after we were married that I began training formally for ministry. We talked and prayed at length about the timing and all that was involved. But the decision and the bearing of the consequences of that decision were mine to make. And then she didn't want to do that. But she submitted to that decision. 
or it might be a whole range of smaller decisions. In the end, a wife is to submit to her husband in everything, verse 24. What does Paul mean by that? I think he just means it's not a kind of piecemeal thing. It's not a kind of It's not a kind of negotiated settlement through life or marriage. It's something that gets us to the very heart of the relationship between a wife and a husband and the very heart of a relationship between a Christian and their Savior. Now, this does not in any way imply that a wife is not strong, intelligent, wise, wonderfully gifted, and astonishingly able in every way. It doesn't mean that. Now, I'm not allowed another personal illustration, but were I allowed, (laughs) you might have in mind someone who is very close to me, who, in my opinion, is strong and probably yours as well, intelligent, wise, wonderfully gifted, and astonishingly able. Yet she willingly submits to me as to the Lord, because I am her head. She does it very powerfully because of her deep love for the Lord Jesus. And I would say that all through my life, the most powerful influence, bar Christ and the Spirit within me, on my leadership as a husband and as a father, is the wife beside me through her submission to me. I mean, it's very practical often. We'll sit at family devotions. Family devotions is like a super spiritual way of describing the riot at the end of tea when no one wants to read the Bible at all. Okay? That's family devotions in the real world. And I think it's always been that. And Sally will she'll often say to me, Dad's now going to read the Bible with us. Or Dad's going to pray for us. She'll look at me. She'll hand me the Bible. And that's a little tiny illustration of were that not the case, I just don't have the confidence to say I would be the one always reaching for the Bible to say, come on, guys, it's time for family devotions. I'm going to take the lead. See how this works? Now, let me just read these verses again, then we'll move on. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. And it's a beautiful thing. Let me say that as a man, because it's God who's saying it, not me. It is a beautiful thing, submission. It's a beautiful thing in marriage. It brings unity and happiness and fruitfulness and joy. It takes friction and heat and complexity out of a marriage. If this is true, verses 25 to 31, in Christian marriage, a husband loves his wife as Christ loves the church. Husbands. Now, Verses 25 to 31 are in two bits. Apostle Paul is a realistic man. He knows that 
we husbands or men in the room need to hear it twice to understand it. So he goes first in verse 25 to 27. Let's read them again. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that he might be holy and without blemish. She might be holy, rather, and without blemish. Notice first up, it's not husbands lead or rule, or be heads over your wives. It's husbands, love your wives. Let me come at that another way around. The exhortation to love means lead. Love is perhaps the most cheapened word in the English language. To love means to lead, but it's love through which you lead. A husband is exhorted to love. The example is Christ's love for the church. What then is Christ's love for the church like that husbands are to mirror? One, he gave himself up for her. That is, he gave his life for his bride. Jesus gave his life for his bride, the church. He was willing to lay down his life for his bride. As a Christian husband, would you do that? Would you give yourself for your bride? Now, if I was to ask that question at the end of the vows next week to Matt, maybe I should, he's just left, so maybe we should do it. Matt, would you give your life for Victoria? I suspect a big tear would roll down his cheek, and we'd all think, oh, sentimental. But in his heart of hearts, the answer would be yes. He's a Christian man. Of course he would. In a sense, it's in the heart of a God's creation of a man that he would do that. And in Christian marriage, he would. Now, that's all a bit high in the sky. Really, what matters next week is, Matt, are you willing to die to self for the sake of your wife every day? What does it mean? Well, it means a selfless, sacrificial love that puts her need before yours. It's practical. Take the kids out. <laughs> Give her time to rest. Buy her a dog if she really wants one. Or after she has bought one, don't tell her she shouldn't have bought it without telling you. I mean, it's a silly illustration. I didn't want a dog. Sally always has. You know, I wish, looking back on the first five years of our marriage, had I not made just such a big fuss about it. So I didn't really care. It was important to her. Or, for example, if you are married to somebody who is a total shambles and a mess, or the opposite, and you are, don't mock them for 40 years of your marriage because they just can't tidy up. Just love them or tidy up for them. And don't tell them how well you've done it after you've done it. <laughs> it's not about taking the bins out as a bloke's job, you know, 
if that mattered a great deal to Sally, I would do it all the time. I take the big bins out, but every time I take the little bins out, I put the wrong stuff in the bins. But if these things matter, do them. That's what this means on the ground. It is your responsibility as a husband to take the lead in making decisions. What would be in the best interest for your wife? So when big decisions happen in life like moving or whatever or jobs or whatever it is, and say it's a job, you know, what is the best thing for my wife and family were I to do this? What is the impact on her emotionally, physically, spiritually? Selflessly and sacrificially in how we take the lead in making decisions. But it does not ever mean, and it shouldn't mean in the end, that we abdicate the responsibility to make the decisions. Now, what's it all for? Why, husbands, should you love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that is, his bride, the church? To what end did Christ do that? That he might, the end of verse 26, sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Christ bled and died for the church, which is you and me, so that we might be sanctified, forgiven, and made like Christ, and one day presented before God. And Jesus says, look how like me they are. Yep. So why do you love your wife? As Christ loves the church. To align your purposes with Christ's purposes to be the one to whom is given the greatest privilege and responsibility to see your wife grow into the likeness of Jesus. When I preach on Ephesians 5 at a wedding, I'll often ask the groom a rhetorical question, is your bride beautiful today? Thus far in the nearly 100 weddings I have done, the answer has always been yes. Will she be beautiful tomorrow? Thus far, the answer has always been yes. Will she be beautiful in 50 years' time? Well, physically, the answer is probably no. Although I will think that the wife to whom I am married is as beautiful then as now. But the real question here is the spiritual beauty that you want to see. The most powerful thing I see as I marry people is, in a sense, the attraction of spiritual beauty in the other. To you as a husband, or to husbands in this church, is given the greatest privilege and responsibility to see our wives made like the Lord Jesus. Two practical ways as to how you do that. One, how you speak to your wife. Sometimes wives put their husbands down in public. I've seen that and somebody mentioned that to me this week in conversation. In a social context, a wife just puts their husband down. It's not nice to, to hear. Husbands, I think, don't do that as much. I think what they do an awful lot more, though, is put their wife down in private when nobody hears. Just the way you speak, is your speech loving? Is your speech kind? What do your children see and hear? Almost every home, you know, Christian homes included. There you are on a Saturday night watching telly, even though I told you two weeks ago you can't watch telly anymore. There's one or two things you can watch, like Netflix, the series on the crown, yeah? 
You sit there and watch, watch the telly. You're sitting there, yeah, and what, you know, something needs to get done. The doorbell runs or the phone goes. What do you do as a husband? You just sit. People do that. Or they say, who's going to get the door? Get up. Love your wife. Speak to her. Thank her. Thank her for another wonderful meal if she does most of the cooking. Thank her for marrying you. Speak kindly to her. Strongly, kindly, like the Lord Jesus. Second practical way of helping your wife to grow in holiness is do not abdicate your responsibility for family devotions, Bible reading, and prayer in your home. I suspect that in a church like ours, like every other church, maybe 70-80% of the husbands in the church do not take that responsibility seriously in their homes. Come on. As I say to myself, let's take that responsibility seriously. And let's encourage each other as we do so. Now, the second part is verses 28 to 31 to give us another angle on the same principle in case we didn't get it the first time as husbands. Let's read them, verse 28, in the same way, husbands. Now, I'm just thinking here, you may be thinking about lunch, some of you, because lots of you here are not married. I think it's fantastic to have the Bible's teaching on marriage laid out for you in terms of what you aspire for. This is what you aspire to if you want and long to be married, and many of you who aren't will be. Husbands love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. The picture here is a husband loving his wife as he loves his own body, his own body that he nourishes and cherishes. And it's not about um, sort of male grooming or anything like that or men beautifying themselves, as many apparently do. Um, It's not about that. The principle is a deeply theological one. It's about you love your wife as you love your own body because Christ loves his bride, the church, because it is his own body. See the point? Yep, let me show you that in uh, the text. Um, The picture, the analogy, is Christ's love for his body, the church, specifically the members of his body. And we can take that image literally. We are the members of the body of Christ, which is the church. If you want to think of yourself as like a leg attached to Christ, well, theologically, that's right, because Christ is in you, in his person, by the Holy Spirit. And therefore, what this is crying out for, surely, is somebody to quote from Genesis, which Paul does for this reason. Verse 31, a man should leave his mother and father and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So what is marriage? Marriage is a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his wife and becoming one flesh. What does one flesh mean? It means one body. A married couple is one body in that sense. And when Christ left his father 
and held fast to his bride, the church. What is the relationship between Christ and the church, his body? It is one flesh. The Spirit lives in you, therefore you are one flesh with Christ. Husband is one flesh with his wife. Now, I don't suspect that I've explained that any more clearly in service two than service one. We are not going to be able to sort out all the theological intricacies of how you as a husband married to your wife living in this way mirrors the relationship between Jesus and his church, how your one fleshness as a married couple mirrors Christ's one fleshness, how you are a new person as a married couple that mirrors the new humanity that is Christ, the church's body. All I can say to you is these parallels run like train tracks right through Scripture and right through who God is. So do not dismantle this and take it apart because the stakes are so high. Just practically, when uh, Victoria is married next week, as is the tradition, her father will walk her down the aisle. And uh, I... I've always wondered about whether we get that right. We're not going to change it, though, until I have walked my daughter down the aisle, because I'm looking forward to that. But it's the wrong way round. Why is it that a wife is walked down the aisle to her husband when Genesis says, a man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. Why is Genesis that way around? Because it is the man's responsibility to take the lead. It is the man's responsibility to stop pretending to live like a kid any longer and run back to his mum. It is to take the lead in the marriage. That's why Genesis is that way around. And it also describes what the Lord Jesus did. What did he do? He left his father and held fast to his bride, the church, and the two became one flesh. So if you are thinking when God inspired these words in Genesis, God was thinking about his redemption plan to send his son to his bride, the church, one day, and they would become one flesh. Well, he was. How can that be? I don't know the mind of God, but he was. And if you are thinking, what a tragedy it would be if in a local church like Chalmers, or if in a church nationally or a church in the world, what a tragedy it would be if we take the institution of marriage, which mirrors more powerfully than anything else on this earth, the relationship between Christ and his church, the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and take it apart. Where's that going to lead us? As we take apart the very foundations of the relationship between God the Father and God the Son. And God the Father, through the Son, the sons of God, who are all of us. Now, as we finish, what has Paul been talking about in these verses? Is he talking about marriage between Christ and the church, 
or marriage between Matt and Victoria or Jen and Richard. I just caught their eye. They're still fresh-faced in the early days of marriage. Is he talking about that or that? Which is it? Why would he make up his mind? Well, let's see if he has. Verses 32 and 33. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. He's been talking about both, of course. The word mystery here means that which used to be obscure has now been made clear. What's now been made clear is that, and Paul refers to this in chapter 3, to me, I am the very least of the apostles. The grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make known to everyone the mystery that was for ages hidden in the mind of God that through the church the wisdom of God might be made known. Through the relationship between Christ and the church, as he is the head and as the church submits to Christ and the one fleshness of it all, the wisdom of God will be displayed to the world. God always knew that would be the case. And he always knew from the day he created humanity that through the marriage between a man and a woman in an exclusive lifelong covenant commitment where the husband is willing to love his wife as Christ loves the church, and where the wife is willing to submit to her husband as she does to the Lord, that also the manifold wisdom of God would be displayed to the world through Christian marriage. He is talking about both. And as your minds are in the stratosphere of the beginnings and ends of time, and you're thinking, oh, what a tragedy it is when the church dismantles all of this, Then the passage ends very practically. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So Christian uh, men who are married, go home and love your wife as Christ loves the church. Christian women, wives, respect your husbands as you respect the Lord. And that will lead to steady, strong, happy, fulfilled, loving marriages. And the stakes are high. It matters a great deal. Let me encourage you as men in the church. Many of you here are younger in your small groups, in your core groups, in your student groups. Talk to each other as men about how you should live and be as Christian men. It's important. As women, talk to each other about how you should live and be as Christian women, as wives. If you long to be married, as some of you do, pray that God will make you into a man or a woman who will give to a marriage what God says a man or a woman should bring and give to a marriage. Remember that when Matt and Victoria walk down the aisle next week and are married, their marriage is woven into the very fabric of creation, the new creation redemption, the gospel, the trinity, eternity. So do not dismantle it. And let me encourage you to to pray, to pray for marriages in this church. The most single thing that could cause havoc in this church is if my marriage to Sally or Sam's to Jen or Andy's to Kyrene or 
Alan Stefiona or any of the elders if that marriage was blown apart and caused havoc in the church. Pray for marriages. Pray for stability. Pray for strength in them. And remember that as we live as this Christian community, our job is not to preach to the culture. Our job is to shine as God's new humanity in the culture. Somebody at the end of the first service. So what you mean is that we go home and we have friends around for lunch. And I, I've always longed that they will get married and live as a married couple and not live together and all that. <laughs> what should we do? And I, and, I, and I said, what do you think you should do? And she said, well, I think we should just have them around and be their friends and, and love them and show them and show them something that is better. Show them something that is better. And let the light of Christ shine. Right, let's pray. Father God, these are really important things, and we thank you for your word. It is not any of our opinion on these things. It is your word that matters, and we love you, and we love your son, and we love your word, and we would love to live more like this each day. Lord, we return to the stuff at the beginning, the stuff in our lives, our hearts, desires, our battles, our struggles. Will you meet us, Lord, in the point of our need? And help us not to set aside these principles for anything. Help us not to call love what it's not. Help us not to cheapen these words. But Lord, we are people who are needy. And we pray, Lord, that you would meet us in our needs. Be gracious to us. Be kind to us. And help us, Lord, to see how important marriage is in the eyes of a living God. And we pray that all in Jesus' name. Amen.